Lesson 10 for November 29 to December 5. Weep and Howl. Sabbath afternoon, November 29, 2014. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word again this week, we would just want to thank you for all the blessings that you give to us. I want to thank you for your help during the recent severe infection I had. And although I had doctors and nurses to look after me and very powerful antibiotics, I sensed your presence there with me. And I trust that each of us this week, as we study your word, may feel your presence, may experience your presence, may have your presence with us. As we open your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sabbath afternoon. Our memory text this week is, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's read that again. Matthew 6.21 For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The worldwide popularity of the television show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? suggests that many people vicariously enjoy the rags-to-riches fantasy and probably hope it could happen to them someday. But wealth isn't all that many believe it to be. Studies suggest that increasing income follows the law of diminishing returns. Beyond allowing people to live comfortably, more possessions do not buy more happiness. Meaningful relationships, job satisfaction, and a purposeful life usually make a greater contribution to one's happiness than does wealth. The best things are freely given, such as loving words, a smile, a listening ear, simple kindnesses, acceptance, respect, a sympathetic touch, and genuine friendship. Even more precious are the gifts given by God, faith, hope, wisdom, patience, love, contentment, and many other blessings that come through His Spirit's presence in our lives. The irony is that, while many Christians would agree with these sentiments, their daily living suggests that selfishness often has the upper hand. As we'll see this week, greed is a big mistake, one fraught with horrendous consequences. Sunday, November 30, Justice Will Be Done. Chapter 5 of James begins with a bang. In verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. No doubt that would have gotten his reader's attention. In James 1, 10 and 11, he reminded the rich of the impermanence of wealth. Here in chapter 5, he urges those who stubbornly hold on to it to weep and howl. It is as if their impending judgment is even now being poured out. The vivid description continues throughout our passage for this week, bringing to mind the divine retribution for the wicked excess that characterizes the period just prior to Christ's return. Let's look at Luke chapter 17, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and Revelation 18 verses 3 and 7. Luke 17, verses 27 to 29. 
They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, and destroyed them all. And Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. And Revelation 18, verses 3 to 7. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities." Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen, and am no widow, and will not see sorrow." And Revelation 3.17, Because you say I am rich, having become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. A similar attitude permeates God's last day church. Interestingly, the Greek word translated as miseries, in James 5 verse 1, comes from the same root used to describe Laodicea as wretched in Revelation 3.17. Question. There is so much injustice in the world, especially economic injustice. Sometimes it's so hard to understand why some people get rich exploiting the poor, and worse, why they seem to get away with it. Read Psalm 73 verses 3 to 19. What hope is found in these verses regarding this perennial problem? Psalm 73, beginning at verse 3. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment, their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly." who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocent, for all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children when I thought how to understand this. It was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God then I understood their end. Surely 
You set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation, as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. Throughout the books of the Old Testament prophets, we find a concern for justice and the promise that God will act to set things right. But this persistence and settled sense of hope did not seem to make the uncomfortable and perplexing period of waiting for God's intervention any easier. For instance, writing at a time of widespread apostasy amongst God's people, when Babylon, swelling with pride, celebrated its power and prosperity, the prophet Habakkuk peppered God with pointed questions. So let's look at Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity, and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife, and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. And in the same chapter, verses 13 and 14, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously, and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? God's short answer was to trust in him and wait a little longer, as we read in chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live, by his faith. And the prophet did just that, as we read in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labour of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation." And so to finish today, what injustices cause you to simmer and burn inside with anger and outrage? And there's so much more going on that you don't even know about. Though, of course, we should do what we can to alleviate injustice. How can we learn to rest in the promise that somehow, when it's all over, God's justice will be done? December 1, When Wealth Becomes Worthless Question. Read James chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. What warning is James giving here? Though his words are quite strong, what kind of wealth is he talking about? What's the basic message? James 5, verses 2 and 3. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. 
Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Rotting wealth, moth-eaten clothing, and even silver and gold rusting. These are images for us to consider soberly as our planet spins blissfully on, faster and faster, towards its demise. The world's economic situation always seems to be going from one crisis to another, and even the good times, when they come, rarely last, and are always followed by a downturn. Any semblance of economic stability and tranquillity that the global marketplace might offer is fleeting and largely imaginary. Discontent and instability grows as the disparity between rich and poor widens. Such was the situation when James wrote that the poor were growing increasingly desperate and the rich more intolerant of the plight of the destitute. Consider the following individuals and describe the effect wealth, or lack of it, had on them. The first is Nabal, and to read about Nabal, we go to 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 2 to 11. Now there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had three thousand sheep and a thousand goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favour in your eyes." For we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So, when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David, and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master, Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? And then Hezekiah in Second Kings chapter 20 verses 12 to 19. At that time, Baradak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that Hezekiah had been sick, and Hezekiah was attentive to them, and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. 
Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, Will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? And Peter, in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him, with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Sooner or later, worldly wealth loses its luster for all of us. We learn its limitations and maybe even its dark side. Money has its place. The problem is when people put it in the wrong place. James says money will be a witness against those who misuse it in verse 3 of James 5, which we read before. Though he gives this warning in an end-time context, the point should be clear. How we use our money matters. The image of flesh-consuming fire is meant to wake us up to the seriousness of the choices we are making with our money. Are we heaping up treasure that will ultimately be burned up? Or are we saving for eternity? Let's look at Luke chapter 12, verses 33 and 34. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth, moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So to finish today, think carefully about your attitude toward money and how it affects your relationships. What does this say about how you are using it?
Tuesday, December 2, Cries of the Poor Reading through James, we may notice that several different categories of wealthy people are mentioned, including rich merchants who will be cut down in the midst of their pursuits in James 1 verse 11, business people who sue to protect their investments in James 2 6, and agricultural landholders who have withheld wages from their labourers in James 5 4, which we'll read shortly. These verses describe the rich negatively based on their past behaviour, present attitude and future punishment. These people have essentially heaped up treasure, as we read in verse 3, at the expense of the poor. Verse 4 reads, Behold, the pay of the labourers who mowed your fields, and which have been withheld by you, cries out. We're asked to compare Leviticus 19.13, Deuteronomy 24.14 and 15, and Jeremiah 22.13, with the question, what important principle is seen here, not just in the immediate context, but in general in regard to how we deal with others? Leviticus 19.13 You shall not cheat your neighbour, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. And Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages, and not let the sun go down on it. For he is poor, and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. And Jeremiah 22, verse 13, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chamber by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. In Israel, in Bible times, as soon as wages were paid, many, if not most, of the workers used these earnings to buy food to feed their families. Withholding wages often meant the family had to go hungry. Thus, it was a serious matter that James was addressing here. No wonder, then, that James spoke so strongly against those who held back wages from those who worked for them. It's bad enough to defraud anyone of anything, but for someone already rich to hoard wealth by stealing from the poor is a sin, not just against the poor, but a sin against heaven itself. And as James writes, it will be dealt with in due time. From Testimonies to the Church, Volume 2, page 682. Riches bring with them great responsibilities. To obtain wealth by unjust dealing, by overreaching in trade, by oppressing the widow and the fatherless, or by hoarding up riches and neglecting the wants of the needy, will eventually bring the just retribution described by the inspired Apostle. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. So to finish the day, what are your dealings with others when it comes to money? What do those dealings say about your Christianity and about how much you reflect the character of Christ?
Wednesday, December 3, Fat and Happy for Now. Our text for today is James 5, verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And we're asked to compare that text with Ezekiel 16.49 and Amos 4.1. Ezekiel 16.49 Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And Amos 4 verse 1 Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring wine, let us drink. What do these passages link to luxurious indulgence? In the ancient world, the notion prevailed that there was a fixed amount of wealth, meaning that if the wealth of some people increased, the wealth of others had to decrease. In other words, The rich can get richer only by making the poor poorer. Creating wealth without adversely affecting the wealth of others, however, seems to be a relatively modern idea. Some even argue that as the rich get richer, they can help make the poor richer too. On the other hand, considering the competition among developed and developing nations for increasingly scarcer resources, the limitations of wealth creation can seem more pressing. Hence, the issue of wealth inequality still rages today. One of the most famous stories of Jesus dealing with issues of inequality is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Let's read about that in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a certain man, rich man, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that Those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. At the time of Jesus, most people were lucky to have two garments, instead of just one, and happy if they feasted once a year. 
By contrast, the rich man in the story was clothed in purple and fine linen, the most expensive kinds of garments, and who feasted sumptuously every day. Poor Lazarus, despite being carried to the gate of the rich man's house, had to beg for the few crumbs he received. Contrary to popular opinion, the real focus of the parable is this life, not the afterlife. In fact, the original Greek makes no mention of heaven and hell at all. Both the rich man and Lazarus are depicted in the same place in verse 23, the grave. The chasm separating them symbolizes the fact that after a person dies, his or her eternal destiny is fixed. Therefore, how we treat people in this life, as described in Moses and the Prophets in verses 29 and 31, is extremely important. There is no future life in which we can make up for what we fail to do in this one. As it says in 1 John 4.20, He who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So to finish today, what regretful things have you done that, though you might be able to make up for now, you won't be able to make up for them later? Thursday, December 4, Blame the Victim When someone has done wrong, the natural tendency is to try to escape responsibility. Often people try to do this by transferring the responsibility to someone else, including the person who has been wronged. Murderers excuse themselves by pleading self-defence or blaming their upbringing. By saying they were excited, sexual abusers blame the victim. Husbands and wives who get divorced typically blame the other for the failed marriage. Those guilty of killing the martyrs of the Christian faith blamed the martyrs by accusing them of heresy. Indeed, Jesus warned his disciples that the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. John 16 verse 2. In fact, we believe that James too was killed for his faith. In light of this, the words in James 5.6 carry even more weight. You have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. How many times have you condemned others, only to realize later that you were really the one who was wrong? Think especially about the last phase of this verse. Does this mean that we should just let people walk all over us? On the other hand, how many quarrels have you had that would never have happened if you had put up no resistance? What does Jesus mean by turning the other cheek in Matthew 5.39? How are we on a practical level to do this? Or is the problem that we want to be practical about something that in and of itself isn't really supposed to be practical? As we have seen, James has quite a bit to say about the rich and the poor. It should be kept in mind, though, that James never condemns the rich simply because they are rich. It is their attitudes and actions that matter to God. Similarly, the bare fact of being economically poor 
does not in itself endear a person to God. It is the poor in spirit and rich in faith who will be heirs of the kingdom, as we read in Matthew 5.3 and James 2.5. These inequalities may have no relation to our particular economic circumstances, but then again, they may. Those who are rich and increased with goods, as it says in Revelation 3.17, may be more needy spiritually than they think. God warned Israel to beware, lest after they entered the land and became prosperous, they should forget that all the good things they enjoyed came from Him, including the power to get wealth, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Friday, December 5. From the book Christ's Object Lessons, page 351 and 352, we read, Money has great value because it can do great good. In the hands of God's children, it is food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty, and clothing for the naked. It is a defence for the oppressed and a means of help to the sick. But money is of no more value than sand, only as it is put to use in providing for the necessities of life, in blessing others, and advancing the cause of Christ. Hoarded wealth is not merely useless, it is a curse. In this life it is a snare to the soul, drawing the affections away from the heavenly treasure. He who realises that his money is a talent from God, will use it economically, and will feel it a duty to save that he may give. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, consider the following statement from Proverbs 22.7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Many poor families are poor because they spend their money as soon as they receive it. When one becomes involved in debt, he is in one of Satan's nets, which he sets for souls. That's from the Adventist Home, page 392. Is helping people to get out of debt or to avoid getting into debt a part of preaching the gospel to the poor, as we read in Luke 4.18? Why or why not? 2. How do we really know whether money serves us or we serve it? Let's look at Luke 16, verses 10 to 13. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And question three. Economic disparity is everywhere. Some people have two, three, even four or more luxurious homes, while others are happy to scrounge up a few pieces of wood and cobble them into a shelter. And what about those who have become obese by stuffing themselves while there are children all over the world going to bed hungry? Some argue that by taking from the rich we can give more to the poor. 
Others argue that as the rich get richer, they can help lift the poor out of poverty. How do we work as Christians to help alleviate the problem of extreme poverty? What things should we do to help? And what things shouldn't we do? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled Trail of Death, Part 1. Joe Sandoval grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist home, but his life was not transformed by God's grace. As a teen, he resented the restrictions that the church represented. At age 15, he dropped out of church and joined a gang. He quickly became involved in organized crime, drugs, and spiritism. He had his body tattooed with symbols of the devil and began smoking marijuana. Soon he moved to hard drugs such as cocaine. Joel's parents allowed him to live at home, hoping that he would see the error of his ways. But when he was high on drugs, he often destroyed things in the house and terrified his mother. When the drugs wore off, Joel became depressed. One time he even tried to commit suicide. In spite of his parents' constant prayers and offers of help, Joel was convinced that no one loved him. He made fun of his parents and others who invited him to church. Joel hated them for what they stood for. He hated the church. He hated God. In spite of his abuse, his parents and church members continued to pray for him and remind him of God's unfailing love. His mother was convinced that someday he would return to God and the church. One night... Joel was supposed to join his gang in a battle with another gang. A voice seemed to warn him not to go out that night. He remained home. Later he learned that his best friend had been killed during the fight. Joel realized that the warning voice he had heard was the voice of God. It had saved his life. As he thought about the past few months, Joel realized that God had been speaking to him, telling him that the life he was leading was wrong. He began to cry for he saw no way out of his drug-infested life. He began attending church again, but when members welcomed him, he thought they were staring at him. He felt like an outsider and stopped attending. Joel decided to leave the country. When he told his mother, she cried. Before he left, she pushed a small book into his hand. "'Please take this,' she begged. It was a New Testament, and in spite of his feelings about religion— Joel asked her to pray for him. Joel and five other young men left Honduras, heading for Mexico. They passed through Guatemala and crossed into Mexico, but early one morning they found themselves surrounded by an angry mob who were brandishing knives and guns. The youths realized that these men intended to kill them. The previous day, someone had stolen merchandise from a local business, and the mob was convinced that the six youths were the thieves. Spewing death threats, the locals locked the youths in a house, then circled the house with their guns and knives in hand. Frightened, the boys watched as the locals prepared a noose to hang them. Some swore, others sobbed. Joel thought about how he had disappointed his family and God. He pulled out his New Testament that his mother had given him and began reading. And we'll have to wait till next week to see what the result is. 
Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful.